Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. So, Jenny, what's been going on? Well, we are gearing up for the All NYC Conference next week. Yeah, it's a big one. Uh, this is number 12. This is the 12th time we've done the All New York City event. And just to make it even more special, we've paired up with Essentials of Emergency Medicine. So Paul, Jun, and the boys are flying out from California to really help us put on an amazing show. I am so excited. Having gone to Essentials, which is a total blast, and having been part of the All NYC now as the fellow, it's like the merging of these wonderful things that I adore. I can't wait. It's pretty cool. So if you're in the New York area, definitely come down. Our faculty for the event are going to be Ruben Strayer, Al Sacchetti, Vicky Noble, and of course, Billy Mallon. It's going to be an incredible event. Awesome. I can't wait. All right. So Jenny, let's drop into our topic for today. What are we going to cover? So this week, our resident conference featured a talk from Trudy Cloyd, one of our PGY3 residents, on epistaxis. We actually discussed a bit on this topic back on podcast 18, but we'll take a little deeper dive today. So epistaxis is terribly common. Trudy quoted finding a lifetime incidence of 60%, which I'll be honest, I think is a bit low. It's hard to imagine that there's anyone who's never had a nosebleed at some point. They probably just don't remember having it. Regardless of its frequency, only a small portion of these patients, somewhere around, I don't know, 6% or so, will actually come in to seek medical attention, whether that's from an emergency physician, an internist, or a pediatrician. About 10% of patients that we see in the emergency department will need ENT evaluation. We typically divide epistaxis into anterior and posterior bleeding. Anterior bleeding typically originates from Kesselblock's plexus, whereas the posterior bleeds come mainly from the sphenopalatine artery and Woodruff's plexus. Most epistaxis is anterior in origin, and most aren't brisk bleeds with associated extensive blood loss. All right, let's talk management. If the patient's well-appearing, the first step is simply going to be to apply proper pressure. Of course, it sounds simple, but it's done wrong so frequently by both patients and providers. We frequently see patients holding pressure too high over the nasal bones, which of course don't compress, or too low way over the nasal ala. Pressure needs to be applied just distal to the nasal bones, and it needs to be hard. Good pressure for epistaxis is going to be a bit uncomfortable, but it's what's got to be done. It's also got to be held for a bit, at least a good five maybe seven minutes before you even think about taking it off and checking to see if they're still bleeding. So the key here is no peaking. No peaking and not to let up that pressure. This is why we often cook up that little contraption that looks like kids' chopsticks with a tongue depressor. You know, there's a real art in making those too. Like people think it's really easy to do that, but I have messed that up many, many times. In fact, you and me both. Yeah, I think we should get Alan and get him to make a quick video of how to put that thing together. I think that's a great idea. Let's do that. Now, while the patient or your tongue depressor structure is applying pressure, there's some info you want to obtain. How long has the nose been bleeding? Which side does it seem to be coming from? How much blood was lost? Get their past medical history and medications, and particularly if they're on any antiplatelet agents or anticoagulants. Is there a history of epistaxis, especially epistaxis that required ENT for control? And is there any recent nasal surgery? The estimated blood loss question is almost always going to be inaccurate as patients can sometimes be quite startled by the bleeding even when it's not that heavy. Nonetheless, we ask it. The recent nasal surgical history is really important because it might help us localize where the bleeding is coming from, anterior or posterior, and these patients tend to be at a higher risk for extensive bleeding 
and are much more likely to need ENT for bleeding control. Now from here, Trudy went into her four steps for epistaxis control. Visualize, anesthetize, cauterize, and tamponade. And by visualize, you mean imagine yourself controlling the bleeding and going through deliberate practice in your head? I think you're confusing this talk with Trudy's other talk on visualization, which was a great talk. But here, what she's talking about is actually visualizing the nasal cavity. That actually makes a little bit more sense. I don't like to spend my time sitting around imagining myself controlling nosebleeds. Now, this may be simple, but it's often not done properly. And if it's not done properly with the proper tools, you really can't get a look at what's going on. Before you do this, make sure you don your PPE, gown, face mask, and gloves. If after pressure the patient continues to bleed, first clear out the nose. That means get the patient to blow all the clot out and then suction out the rest. The Yankauer suction catheter is pretty worthless here. Actually, the Yankauer suction catheter is pretty worthless in general, but it's particularly worthless here. What you'd like is a Fraser suction catheter if you've got them. These give you a lot more suction capability so they can really get those clots out. Now, after you suck it all out, take a good look inside and see what you see. A nasal speculum is the best to do this. We'll drop some images of a good epistaxis tray with all the equipment in the show notes. Now, when you insert the nasal speculum, you want to orient it so that it opens vertically, not horizontally. Make sure as well that you take a good look at the posterior pharynx to see if you see considerable blood dripping backwards. If you see a small bleeder at this point, you can try to put some direct pressure on it and then hit it with some silver nitrate. The bleeding has to be almost completely stopped for silver nitrate to work, though. Often when you do this, you can't see much because the blood just fills the nasal cavity again. So what's going to be our next step? So if you've still got bleeding, you're going to want to get some vasoconstrictor up in there. That'll tighten up the vessels and can really stem the bleeding. Some topical oxymetazoline or epinephrine will do nicely. Or you can go old school and you can go and get some intranasal cocaine. Yeah, that might work, but it's probably not going to come very easily out of the pixis. Now, also add a little lidocaine as well to anesthetize the nose because you're going to be sticking all sorts of stuff up in there, and that's just not very comfortable. I find the easiest way to do this is to soak a small gauze with the agent and then stick it in the nose and then get the pressure back on. Again, you're going to want five or seven minutes of pressure before you take it out and then insert the speculum again to see if you can visualize that small bleeder. Again, if you see the small bleeder at this point, go ahead and apply your cautery. Now, if you do all that and you still can't get the bleeding under control, you can move on to packing. That's definitely the traditional approach, but I like to insert topical TXA into the algorithm here. If I haven't had success to that point, I'll soak a small gauze in TXA and put that in and apply pressure. Again, about 5 to 10 minutes of pressure and see what happens. We'll drop a link to a reference in the show notes where this was done and had a very high success rate. Have you tried this? What's, what's your experience with it, Ben? Yeah, so I love applying TXA to mucosal membranes that are bleeding. So whether that be dental, whether it be nasal, I've applied it about half a dozen times in epistaxis. And I'd say I've had about an 80% success rate or so. So most of the patients that I do this on, it stops the bleeding. So I really do like it. Every once in a while, it will fail, but it's a pretty easy intervention to try. So let's say you don't have TXA or you tried it and it didn't work. Now we're going on to packing, right? Yeah, I think so. I think you've kind of run out of options by that point. If you've done a good job with everything else along the way, it's time to reach for the packing. Now, we shouldn't look at packing as a failure because sometimes you just have to do it. Now, there's lots of ways to do this, but the most common is probably the Miracel pack. 
The key in placing these starts with all the things you've already done, shrinking the vessels and the mucosa with your topical agents and anesthetizing the nasal canal. Really do that. This is not pleasant. Now, generously lubricate the packing, and when you place it, it should be directed parallel to the ground when the patient's head is held in neutral position. Yeah, in the past, I have done this very, very wrong. I've directed the packing superiorly, so just like tilted about 10, 15 degrees. But that's just not the way the anatomy works. If you do that, you're going to end up with packing in the brain. Once you get it in, it expands, you tamponade the bleeding. You're going to want to fasten the strings to the side of the face, which doesn't look great, but it's kind of the way to do it to make sure that when the patient goes for follow-up, you can get that thing taken out pretty easily. Now, warning, we've got a controversy coming here. Traditionally, it's been recommended that patients with an anterior pack should be placed on antibiotics to prevent sinusitis and toxic shock syndrome. We reviewed this topic in depth back in podcast 18, but the bottom line is that in healthy patients, antibiotics aren't necessary. Agreed. The key here, though, is that the packing needs to be removed within 48 to 72 hours. Preferably, that's going to be in the ENT's office, but if it can't, they can come back to the ED and get it taken out there. All right. Well, that's fairly straightforward. But what about the patient with the brisk bleeding? Yeah, I find that these patients can be pretty scary. I've only seen two with brisk bleeding, but it was like an upper GI bleed type of brisk. Again, you want to make sure your PPE is on, and then you want to move quickly to control the hemorrhage. In this situation, I'm not going to screw around with all the other stuff. I'm going right for tamponade. It can be difficult to differentiate a posterior from an anterior bleed here, so we're just going to go ahead and assume it's posterior and take that out of play. The easiest way to do this is to take a Foley catheter, insert it in the nose, and then blow the balloon up and tamponade the bleeding. If the bleeding stops, great. Get on the phone, get ENT down, and get them to fix the situation. Of course, you're also going to be doing your standard resuscitation. Two large-bore IVs, monitor, fluids or blood if needed, and if the patient is on anticoagulation, you're going to want to reverse that. And with that Foley catheter, it's really not as simple as just throw it in. Oh, I think, it's, sounds- I think it's that simple, Jenny. Just throw it in. <laughs> What you're going to want to do here is place the Foley, visualize it in the posterior pharynx, and then put five cc's of water in the balloon. Pull it back and then inflate another five cc's. Hemostat it to make sure that nothing comes out and put a little bolster on to protect the ala from pressure sores. All right. Well, if you have to get technical about it, that is the correct way to do it. You don't just throw it in. And I think that's <laughs> some good tips. So good. Yeah, but just, just throw it in. Just throw in the Foley catheter. But those are some great tips. That is really the way that you should be doing it. Make sure you're visualizing. Make sure it's in the right place. These brisk bleeds, again, can be very impressive, but don't get overwhelmed. A Foley catheter and that balloon there can really tamponade the area. And by the way, you don't need two Foley catheters. One Foley catheter and that balloon is enough to create the tamponade. Well, Jenny, that's epistaxis in a nutshell. How about hitting some of the big take-home points? Sure. Now, the first step in managing epistaxis is solid pressure. This means holding a tight pinch just distal to the nasal bones and hold without peaking for at least five to seven minutes. This will stop a good deal of the bleeding. Next, if you need to do more, start by soaking gauze in either oxymetazoline or epinephrine, mix in some lidocaine to help with anesthesia, pack the nair again, and then add some compression again. Hopefully this will stop the bleeding enough that you can see that nice little bleeder and perform some cautery. If that doesn't work, your third line of treatment here could be some TXA. Again, soak a gauze in TXA, pack the nair, add some compression, and give it another five to seven minutes. It can't hurt to try. And then, of course, your last resort is going to be packing. Here, make sure the patient is well anesthetized and that the packing is well lubricated, and then apply horizontally, not vertically, as we're often tempted. 
Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.